0: Hi, welcome back. In this episode, we are going to cover a lot of information about how individuals can obtain special education services, all the different ways of measuring as well as the laws in place that help one be successful in life. Also in this talk, I will have a guest speaker. My mom will be joining us and she'll be telling us about her own experience. A little background on my family is that I'm the youngest of four and my two older brothers had an IEP to guide them in education i will first explain what RTI is and help you get a grasp of some knowledge and then my mom will share her own experience and the process that she went through to help my two brothers obtain their own IEPs. Understanding the different ways that students can get evaluated and identified for special education services is so important when trying to get a grasp on special education. Response to Intervention or RTI is a way of measuring a student's change or lack of change in academic performance or behavior based on instruction. This is to help students who are struggling with a skill or lesson and helping them succeed. While children with special needs or learning disability may use RTI, this is also just a general concept with students to help them reach their full potential. This combats the issue of students waiting to fail before getting help. Once these individuals are recognized they can get help as soon as possible and in rti there are three tiers the first one is a crucial step for identifying students and this is by using universal screening this isn't very frequent but this is pretty much observing kids in a large group setting to see if they aren't reaching benchmarks or falling behind and if they are they will then move to tier two this is when students need more support they're identifying at risk They receive evidence-based interventions like corrective feedback, questioning, peer-mediated instruction, and explicit instruction. They also have more frequent progress monitoring. They have small group instructions, more opportunities to respond, reteaching, and reviewing in a more explicit manner. And explicit instruction is an evidence-based systematic way of teaching a skill It starts off with the teacher modeling and explaining what to do, then it goes to guided practice, and then it goes to independent practice where the kid is then doing it on their own. Or an easier way to remember this is I do, we do, you do. Example of this is say a teacher is helping a kid build a bridge with building blocks The teacher will first model how to do it. They will be putting the blocks on top of each other, building this bridge, and explaining what they are doing. And once the kid seems to understand, then they will have guided practice where maybe they will take turns building this bridge. The teacher will show them to put one block on top of the other, and then the kid will repeat them. And then there's independent practice, where once the kid has seems to master this skill, then they will try to do it on their own. If this still hasn't helped the kid get to the benchmark they're supposed to be at, then they have to move to Tier 3. This includes the smallest number of students, and it uses intense interventions to help the students, and it's more individualized. They're still not meeting the benchmark. They need frequent progress monitoring, more frequent than in Tier 2, more individualized instruction than in Tier 2, and increased frequency and duration of interventions, and direct error correction, and more scaffolding. Scaffolding is when the teacher breaks up the lesson and the student learns off of their prior knowledge and just learns more and more until they've mastered the skill. And with all of this, I should also debunk a myth relating to RTI, and that is that RTI is a universally accepted model, which research has shown to be effective. And although RTI is a great model to look for when uh, wanting help and identification, there's a lot of variability in how it's implanted, and this contributes to the idea that there's little research on the effectiveness but it is still a great thing to look for if you need help. So without further ado, I'm welcoming my mom to say a little bit of background with my two brothers and when she first noticed that they needed a referral to move through the steps.
1: Hi, I am Lisa Klank. I am Savannah Deshaney's mom. I have two kids that had IEPs when they were younger. One of my kids is Chase. He's the younger of the two. Um, I, he had speech issues when he was about three or four. So I had brought him to my family pediatrician, and we had talked about that. Um, and he, So he had speech services when he was in preschool, and then he went on to kindergarten. And by going to t- parent-teacher conferences, um, we determined that um, at about age eight that he was having more and more issues. So I um, went again over to my family pediatrician and she said um, he could get evaluated at the U of M, which he did. And eligibility, so he was evaluated there. Eligibility was decided after a battery of tests and an IEP team wrote IEP for, for both of my kids, but for Chase. Um, we had a meeting, an IEP meeting. The IEP was written and services were provided and everyone was given a copy of the IEP, which included accommodations, modifications and supports. And then progress is, was reported to me quarterly and at parent teacher conferences. Um, the IEP was reviewed once a year at a meeting, and every three years the kids were re, both of my kids were reevaluated.
0: Okay, so how did his
1: education change to accommodate to his IEP? So initially, he was, um, there was a block for math where he sat with a para, and he did always sit at the front of his class in all of his classes, but he was mainstream for the rest of his classes, just math he had a para for. And tests were written, to, were read to him. He had practice tests, and then, um, He got to chew gum because it was determined that when he chewed gum, he was able to concentrate a little bit better, and he was doing better. So we continued to just put that in the IEP as well. And then it did change throughout the year um, as the years went by. He was reevaluated again when he was age 13 at the Minneapolis Clinic of Neurology and he had been diagnosed with ADHD earlier and been put on medications, but they determined he did not have ADHD. So um, we brought that back to the IEP team and added whatever we needed to take in or remove or add to his IEP and continued on with that, Um, continued to have the IEP meetings, and then we met with um, Prairie Care when he was about age 16 so about three years later and they also determined that he did not likely have ADHD but he did have an auditory processing disorder which made a lot of sense so we had his IEP rewritten at that point and then he was um, he we just followed the IEP from there all right, thanks for sharing all of that. And was Ross similar or what was his process? So Ross was similar but a little bit different as he didn't have any speech issues. Um, I went to pe- teacher, parent-teacher conferences and he was about in third or fourth grade and was struggling. Um, so we, again, went, you know, started with the school, went to my family pediatrician, told her about it, He was referred over to the U of M, which he had similar testing as Chase and was determined, his eligibility was decided, um, that he also needed an IEP. And so that same thing with Chase, we had our IEP meetings, an IEP was written, services were provided, I was given a copy, and it included accommodations, modifications, and supports again, and then progress was reported to me.
0: All right, well thanks for sharing again. I did not really know the complexities of the IEP relating to my brothers and I learned a lot. You are welcome, thank you. So like my mom was talking about, a lot about the IEPs, it spells out how a school plan is to meet an exceptional student's needs. It's more common for children aged like 3 to 21 years old or until graduation whichever comes sooner. There's another thing called an IFSP and this is an individualized family service plan. This is similar to an IEP for older children but broadens the focus to include family as well as the child. My mom didn't write this because she realized it later on but this can be written up to kids uh, six years of age. But usually written for infants and children up to three years of age. Also in IEPs there's uh, transition plans for older students and it's normally incorporated when they're about 16 years old. It talks about their goals and where they want to go, how they're going to get there, where they want to work, where they want to live, if they need an education to get there, and like annual goals. The IEP must include a statement of the linkages and or responsibilities of each participating agency before the student leaves the school setting. And some various placement options that kids with IEPs can do is uh, learning in a general education classroom, which is the least restrictive restrictive, uh, environment, which means that they're just in the gen ed setting for the majority of the day. They can also have resource classrooms, kind of what uh Chase did. Or a separate classroom where they're outside of the Gen Ed classroom for more than 60% of the day. There is also separate schools. People can live on campus or they can be homebound. And some important expectations that I want to mention that all educators need to follow is that they need to make maximum effort to accommodate individual students' needs. They need to evaluate academic abilities and disabilities. They need to refer for evaluation, participate in conferences, participate in writing the IEP, communicate with parents or guardians. They did that a lot when they were writing uh, Chase and Ross's IEP. Participate in due process hearing negotiations and collaborate with other professionals in identifying and making maximum use of exceptional students' abilities and expectations for special education. So, of course, they need to do those. They also need to instruct students with learning problems using evidence-based practices, like I was talking about earlier. Uh, Manage serious behavior problems, evaluate technological advances, and just knowing the general laws regarding special education. Some other concepts that I'm just going to mention that relate to special education is universal design. I'm going to talk about technology and standard-based learning. So I watched a TED Talk by Michael Nesmith and it says why we need the universal design. That's the title of it and feel free to watch it. It's an amazing TED Talk. And he does a great way of explaining what universal design is. He starts off with talking about a doorknob and that if it's a younger kid or a person with a hook, they have a hard time with a doorknob. So then he went on to a handle, a handle that moves up and down that's more accessible to them now. But it still can be tough for people in wheelchairs or say you have a stroller. It can be difficult. And he referred to the universal design in that scenario as a sliding glass door. There are, of course, many things out there that can be improved on. Uh, Movie theaters, for example. I know that there hasn't always been closed captioning for movie theaters, so that's definitely improved. And then he made two statements that I think are really important to recognize. He said, disability drives innovation, kind of like those examples, And all of us have a disability. And he was referring to this as it could also be temporary. But like I said in the last podcast, when the lights are turned off, you sometimes can have a disadvantage. You don't really know where you're going. Another disability that could be per se temporary would be uh, if if someone is pregnant. They have some disadvantages there. So just important to remember that and implementing that into the classroom would be like different representations of material, being able to make the text bigger, smaller, uh, different methods of communication and more engagement of the students and how they respond to the curriculum. Those are all really important to consider about universal design and how it relates to special education. Uh, Technology is also something to note If technology allows one to achieve more without causing limitations, it may be in the individual's best interest to use it. Although there's definitely many controversial ideas uh, with technology, whether that's like medical treatment or communication. Like thinking about ethical dilemmas, for example, uh, correcting a disability before birth and like thinking about that technology has a big... Uh, it can definitely impact a lot, benefit or for the worse, but you just got to think about that one. And also being too dependent on technology can pose an issue. So learning alternatives is also really important. And something that's more recent is standard-based learning and the impact of that on special education and exceptional learners. So in 2010, they create a standard-based learning for English language arts and math for K through 12. And students with disabilities may have instructional support, but they all need to take standardized tests covering the same content. They may need to alter the setting. They may need to be in a small group or have extended time. They may also need the directions read aloud or other types of responses like oral or typed responses. But then there's another question that comes up with, who are we truly comparing, and is it at the expense of study skills or daily living skills if we're focusing on these standardized tests? So just questions to consider, but there are definitely many unanswered questions in this field, but that always helps to strive for better and provide ways to improve on the education and just related services for people with disabilities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned a lot.